Hello, you're listening to In On The Act with Sarah Jackman. Today, I'm joined by Mark Goldtree, barrister at Falcon Chambers, to discuss the Law Commission's recommendations for updating the Arbitration Act 1996, published on the 6th of September, alongside a draft bill. Following the announcement in the King's speech that an arbitration bill will be included in the forthcoming parliamentary session, that bill now looks set to make it onto the statute books. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the Law Commission's work. You've obviously had a bit of time to digest the project and um, have a little look at what they're proposing. Perhaps you can start by just outlining for our listeners what it is that the Law Commission was seeking to do and what it's published. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the Law Commission at the outset and at the end recognise that the Arbitration Act currently works pretty well and so although there's quite a lot of proposals this isn't a big rewrite of the whole scheme it is fixing some problems and troubleshooting and I think what it's really aimed at is uh, keeping England and Wales as a premier seat for arbitrations for those parties that have got a choice about where they go and so most of the uh, proposals say are about streamlining, making things work better. Um, I think a result of that is the sort of normal arbitration that doesn't encounter any problems will run more or less as it did before, but hopefully fewer of them will run into the sort of difficulties uh, that can uh, make arbitrations more complicated and expensive. A brief overview there just in terms of what was intended. I suppose for some of our listeners, there will be a good familiarity with the Arbitration Act, and for others, perhaps they won't be quite so familiar with it as a, a mechanism for resolving disputes. Give us a sense of how it's used in, in property cases. I know you've mentioned to me before there are really four key areas. Yes, I think that this is something which has evolved over time. Um, I think starting with the most uh, historical, certainly for a long time now, uh, rent review clauses have often included an arbitration clause uh, so that that will then go off and be decided. And unless something is very unusual, that will be under the Arbitration Act. I think there's two areas that I see a lot at the moment are in property practice. Uh, one is in relation to partnerships of various sorts. In cases I've got about GP partnerships who own the lease or the freehold of their surgery, um, house building partnerships and so on. Um, those sorts of partnership agreements uh, which often touch on property will usually have some sort of arbitration clause saying disputes about the partnership go to arbitration and that reflects the general kind of sense of the partnership uh, law where the courts will generally not intervene in partnerships while they're running. Um, the third area where we already see it a lot is in agricultural and rural work, both because of the partnership angle, a lot of farming partnerships again will have those clauses, uh, but also because of the statutory arbitrations under the Agricultural Holdings Act. And then the fourth area which I'm seeing more and more of is just more broadly in modern commercial and residential leases, I think prompted by the long wait times in the courts, especially in the county courts, it's becoming, I think, more common to have an arbitration clause that covers actually pretty much any dispute, so dilapidations, for example, or, or disputes about termination. 
So I think it's, if anything, on the rise in the property world. That's certainly a very live issue. Okay. So a number of areas then where it does apply in the real estate context. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about some of the issues that the Law Commission was seeking to address. Well, as I said at the beginning, there's quite a lot of small but important issues. And, and I think about them in a sort of before, during and after sense. There's uh, a couple of issues about the setting up of the arbitration and, and how it gets started. There's then a trilogy of small issues for the sort of during the arbitration, uh, things that change the, the nuances of how it runs. And then two fairly big and important issues uh, in my after section, which is really about how arbitrations can end and how awards can be challenged in the courts. So uh, if we think first about that before bit, um, there's two proposals. The first one is about the slightly thorny issue of arbiter independence and what duty they have to disclose potential conflicts of interest. Um, and one of the points the Law Commission make is this is particularly problematic in areas where you've got only a small number of well-qualified specialist arbitrators. And I think that's something that comes up a lot in property, in you know, niche areas, telecoms, agriculture, you know, water rights, you know, that sort of thing where there's really not a big pool of people. And so you can end up with a situation where maybe the arbitrator acted or is acting for one of the parties in other disputes, or overlapping arbitrations where the arbitrator has one arbitration with A and B and another one with B and C, perhaps relating to a totally different area of land uh, or property rights. And slightly surprisingly, the Arbitration Act at the moment doesn't say anything about any duty to disclose conflicts of interest. Arbitrators have to actually act impartially, but if they think they can do that without telling anybody about these various conflicts, then as far as the Act is concerned, that's not a problem. The Supreme Court took a slightly different view in a case called Halliburton. Um, the details of that are quite complicated and it's all well summarised in the report, but basically that introduced some duties on arbitrators to disclose potential conflicts of interest. The Law Commission are proposing going even further with this, really in two ways. The first is they are suggesting that it's put into the Act, so that would mean that it would apply to non-contractual arbitrations, like statutory arbitrations, and also they're suggesting it would start from the moment that an arbitrator is approached about the possibility of being appointed and continuing right the way through. So that's quite a big strengthening of the, the scope of the duty. And they're also proposing toughening up, really, the obligation by saying arbitrators need disclose not only things that they know that might reasonably give rise to doubts about their impartiality, but also things that they ought to know, that they have constructive knowledge of. And I think this is really worth being aware of, both for arbitrators and for those who are looking to challenge them on, on bias grounds. A lot of the consultation responses pointed out this is really very onerous, uh, especially because Halliburton says, if you have something which falls into this category that you can't disclose for confidentiality reasons, you can't take up the appointment. And so there's concerns about that, but I think the overall sort of inspiring confidence in English and Welsh arbitration 
is what seems to have won out here. And you might think, well, this, this will never happen. We were just discussing, I, I had a case at the uh, end of last year where the arbitrator and one of the uh, solicitors representing the parties had been at school together, they'd been social friends, they'd been professional colleagues, they'd fallen out and fallen in with each other at various points, and neither of them thought they had to disclose that. Um, eventually there was a challenge for removal, which we'll talk about later, uh, that was out of time. But, you know, respectable professionals looked at this and said, well, no, I, this, I'm fine, I can carry out my duties, it's not a problem. So I think that is something really to be aware of as a toughening up. The second and I think smaller issue for property practitioners in the before phase is something that you know, more broadly commercial arbitrations are very interested in, which is um, looking at the question of the governing law of the arbitration. There's again a Supreme Court case called ENCA, which makes some provisions for that. Um, the proposal is to make it so that broadly if the parties don't specify it, the governing law will equal the seat of the arbitration. I think it's comparatively rare because of the quite complicated rules about governing law for property disputes. It's comparatively rare for that to come up, but if it applies to you, you're dealing with overseas property, then that's one thing to be aware of. So that's the kind of first phase, is the sort of setting up mm -hmm. of the arbitration. The during bit, the sort of bits about the nuts and bolts of running the arbitration, three things that I think are broadly sensible, relatively uncontroversial and will just be useful. Um, one is uh, a proposed new power effectively of summary judgment, uh, where a particular part of the case has got no real prospect of success. The procedure's left flexible. That seems very useful to have. Um, secondly, um, a power for the court to make orders under section 44 of the Act, uh, which are orders in support of the arbitration, um, not just against the parties, but against third parties. And again, it's a sensible step, I think. The classic is you apply for an order for the preservation of evidence. Well, that's no good if one of the parties, you know, partners or brothers can say, well, that doesn't apply to me, so I'm going to destroy documents in my possession. Um, and then thirdly, some uh, provisions where you have emergency arbitrators, so where an arbitrator has to be brought in very quickly to fill a gap, broadly speaking, giving them similar powers. So, so that's mostly a tidying up. Probably most people would think those things should be there, and you know, if these proposals go through, they will be. The final section is the after, and I think this is probably where there's the most controversy and maybe the most interest for listeners. Um, the first issue relates mostly back to that question of arbitrator independence. Um, and it's because it's all about resignation and removal of arbitrators and what liabilities they can face, what costs orders they can face, and you know, when they can apply to have their fees paid by people. To give you an idea of why this matters, the case I was talking about where there was this belated challenge for conflict of interest, one of the reasons it, it dragged on so long that it timed out was what the arbitrator said is, look, I don't think there's a problem here. The authorities tell me, and they do, that just because one side says you've got a conflict of interest, if you don't think you have, you should stand firm. It'd be wrong for you to resign then. But the arbitrator said, well, if you want me to resign, fine, but 
I want you to make an agreement that I'm not going to be liable and that I'm going to get my fees paid. And quite surprisingly at the moment, um, the general provisions under Section 29 of the Act don't cover this. And all that it says is an arbitrator can apply to the court to have these various orders made. And so uh, it really is quite risky for an arbitrator <laughs> to resign in the face of a challenge. But then the flip side of that, which is a bit unfair, is if they don't resign and they're ultimately removed, then at the moment it's at least possible that they can have a costs order made against them uh, in the removal proceedings. So the Law Commission's suggesting really narrowing that down again to protect arbitrators. So they're suggesting that where there's a resignation, unless it's unreasonable, there's no liability on the arbitrator. And that's, I think, sensible. The only slight problem is we don't have much guidance on what will be reasonable or unreasonable, other than that point that you shouldn't step down just because somebody impugns your uh, credentials or your impartiality. So I think watch that space for a bit of litigation of that case through. And then for removal, the suggestion is no liability for costs unless the arbitrator has acted in bad faith. Completely obvious why you have unreasonable versus in bad faith. But again, you know, in principle, this is very protected of, of, of arbitrators and um, in general re really reduces the ability to recover what are effectively wasted costs if it turns out that the arbitrator needs to stand down or, 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 or does stand down. But I think that's meant to work together with the tighter duties of disclosure. The point is, if there are any problems, the arbitrator should be disclosing them at the beginning and if they don't, you could imagine that a resignation or removal might be looked on quite badly by the courts. Finally, I say there are quite a lot of proposals here. There are. <laughs> and say, so, you know, this is all really about things that can go wrong. Mm. You know, if, if listeners are thinking, goodness, everything's going to change, nine out of ten arbitrations are going to run much the yeah. same. The final thing is about court challenges to the award. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who's been involved in those knows it's a, a really fraught area. There's roughly three types of challenges under section 67 about jurisdiction, section 68 about procedural impropriety, and section 69 on questions of law. Uh, section 68, the Law Commission left alone, uh, even though it has its own difficulties. But what they decided to do is make a suggestion about section 67, the, the jurisdiction challenges. At the moment, the Supreme Court said in a case called Dala that usually these challenges are a complete rehearing, so you can bring in new evidence, new arguments, um, and the thinking there is, well, you know, if the arbitrator maybe doesn't have jurisdiction, why should we give any real weight to what they decided? Um, what the Law Commission are saying is a much more pragmatic approach, which says, no, unless there's some reason why you couldn't have run these arguments or brought this evidence in front of the arbitrator, then effectively, although it doesn't quite say this, it's going to be more of a review than a rehearing. You know, was it a reasonable choice? That is controversial because, you know, if an arbitrator says, I've had a look and I've got jurisdiction, then you're stuck with that or vice versa. Section 69, we'll have a look at under things they might have done but chose not to. So that's the sort of the overview. So it's, it's meant to be cleaning it up, 
streamlining it. Mm. Um, but quite a lot of things to be aware of in those before, during and after phases. Okay. I mean, you touch on it there, you know, missed opportunities. I mean, what's your sense of whether there are things that could have been looked at that perhaps haven't? You know, I get the sense from you that some of this is relatively uncontroversial, particularly the during section. So what is your sense of what, what could have been looked at? I think that there's a, a couple of areas, I mean, you know, you can speculate forever, but there's there's really three areas that are looked at in the report where the Law Commission comes down on the side of not making a suggestion that I think perhaps they should have done, and I think perhaps they should have done because in this area actually matters are moving quite quickly and there's a lot of live litigation. Starting at the end there, Section 69 appeals on points of law. Uh, at the moment, firstly, they're very restricted. Um, you know, they either have to be obviously wrong or uh, arguably wrong and a point of general public importance. So it's quite narrow. And one of the options that was considered was simply removing that at all, say you're just stuck with whatever the arbitrator mm. does. So it didn't go down that route. But at the same time, there's lots of procedural quirks and lots of substantive quirks. And um, you know, again, we were just discussing uh, in March next year, I'll be in the Court of Appeal on a case called Osler and Osler, which is exactly about the correct procedure to follow on Section 69 challenges. So the Law Commission say they don't think it's a live issue. And to be fair to them, it wasn't when they published their report. But March next year, have a look out for that and the fallout of there. Um, two other areas that they looked at that I think perhaps more could have been done. Um, one is uh, interim and provisional orders. Um, these might be uh, interim orders for costs, um, effectively interim injunctions, you know, things which are not the final award. It's been unclear for a while now uh, what the status of those orders are. Um, are they awards in the technical sense? And they say, well, who cares? Well, the two reasons you might care is one is if they're awards, they can be enforced by the court. You can apply to the court and it's a relatively straightforward process to get them turned into a court order. Similarly, everything we said about Section 67 challenges and Section 69 challenges apply to awards, not to other orders. Um, and the drafting isn't ideal around it and nobody really knows. Um, and again, I think in fairness to the Law Commission, when they started their work, this wasn't a very active issue, it was a known issue. But I think it is coming to the fore. There was a case that they referred to, EGF and HVF, last year, which brought this issue to the fore. And as we were discussing, I was meant to be tomorrow in the High Court arguing about the issue again, although that has settled. So I think it's becoming a very live issue. Mm. The final area they looked at, which I think could be clarified is confidentiality. It's actually the first issue they looked at. It may be surprising to listeners to find out that not all arbitrations are confidential. It's the first thing every arbitrator says, this is all confidential to you. That will be the case for most contractual arbitrations, but not all of them. I was quite surprised on Friday last week, another case I was doing in the High Court, um, called uh, Shops Council and Benyon, we got the first ruling that um, Agricultural Holding Act statutory arbitrations are not automatically confidential. Mm. 
even though that is what everybody thought they were. So it's a real messy picture, which they recognise. It does seem to me that it would have been easier and m more in line with this sort of streamlining simply to say any arbitration which is under the auspices of the Act is confidential unless the parties agree otherwise. Um, I think that would be easy for everyone mm. to understand and could have been easily executed. The court, of course, can still order disclosure of matters if it needs them. So I think you know, Section 69, interim orders and confidentiality, they've been looked at, they've been considered, so you know, I understand that they've thought about it, but I think matters are perhaps moving more quickly than, than perhaps the Law Commission realised in those three areas. Okay. I suppose one of the things we don't know yet is whether the government, when it does introduce its new bill, is going to introduce the Law Commission recommendations and draft bill in its entirety. If it is, and if based on what you've seen, um, that bill does appear, what's your sense of whether it will deliver against its aims? I think that assuming that it, they do go, out, go down the route of just using the draft bill, and the signs coming out of the briefing note accompanying the King's speech strongly suggested that that's what they're going to do, which would be sensible. I think pretty much everything that's proposed is helpful streamline as I've said one or two I think are controversial and shift the balance uh, between arbitrator and the parties in different ways I think though that a good arbitrator and well-behaved parties will have an easier time of it than they do now but I think there'll still be plenty of these pitfalls and of course it's worth just reminding everyone that until and unless it does go through and become law these various uh, statutory provisions and Supreme Court cases are still the law, so yeah. you know, plenty to fight about there. But I think it's it's a good report, it's a good bill, and it will definitely help. And just give us a sense of were it to be enacted as suggested by the Law Commission in that draft bill, um, what, for example, would a rent review arbitration look like under the new system? Would it change radically? I don't think it would. As I say, if you've got... You know, rent review is an area where there's plenty of uh, well-qualified people you're probably not going to have issues about conflicts of interest or about seats and governing law. You're unlikely to get summary judgment on a rent review realistically. Um, and hopefully you, know, you won't have disputes about jurisdiction um, and removal of arbitrators. So as I say, if it runs smoothly, it won't look any different. Um, but... I think it's worth being well aware that you know things do go wrong even with the best of intentions and I think that you know there'll be that balance some things easier to challenge some things less yeah. easy. Yeah and 2024 is as we all now are aware is a, a general election year what do you feel are the chances of this bill going through and being picked up before the parliamentary session ends? I think you know thinking back to my civil service days there's always competing priorities and a week or even a, a weekend it as it turns out is a long time in politics but certainly the signals at the moment are there's an appetite to get this done you know, as, as you alluded to the report's not been out very long it's been put straight into the king's speech and if you compare how the notes and the speech talk about this bill compared with say the renters reform bill which is very much we still think it's a good idea in principle, but there's a lot needs to be sorted out first. You know, 
this arbitration bill looks like an easy win and one could imagine that a, a busy government with an election coming up might want some easy wins that are going to be broadly popular and they can uh, point to as helping business, helping the English legal sector. So one never knows, but I think I'd be surprised if it didn't make it through if they do just stick with the draft bill as proposed because that obviously reduces the work that would be needed in drafting. Um, so I think there's every possibility that you know, a year from now this could be uh, at least through the parliamentary process whether all of it's brought into force immediately obviously remains to be seen but I, I think it's likely to go through. And in terms of what happens next in, in timings um, do you get a sense of when we might see a bill be introduced to Parliament? That's the vagaries of the parliamentary timetable um, and a cabinet reshuffle always puts these things back. That said, normally we'd be looking at you know a bill team being put together and drafting and lots of debates and committee stage. I can see this bypassing quite a lot of that e effectively because there's such widespread support for the report. It wouldn't shock me for it to be introduced early in the new year um, with a view to just getting it through and banking it. Equally, it might be kept towards the end of the session, you know, bounced through at the end so you know you can point to it. Uh, so I think you know, keep an eye on its progress. Um, I suspect that when it does come, you'll get a sort of subtle but muted announcement in, in uh, all the right places. So I'm sure it will, will become known. But I, I, I would think probably either soon or just before the election are the most likely times to spot it was okay. And one last question before we let you go. In terms of your own client base, what sort of sense do you get that people will welcome the proposals in their current form? I mean, is there an appetite for this sort of change? I think that, to be honest, that is hugely varied depending on the client base. If, if we think back to what we said at the beginning about the sort of people that get involved in this, if you're a big commercial landlord doing lots of commercial arbitrations, then I think this is very much on your radar. And if you've been caught up in one of these removal or resignation issues, for example, it really stings. But for most of my clients, they touch the Arbitration Act just once. You know, say you're a GP in a practice, you're a farmer in a farming partnership, you, you probably don't even know it exists. And so I would say the appetite is probably more from the professional sector. But I do think this cleans up some things that clients are very surprised to find out yeah. um, when when they get there. I think you know a normal sensible person would be quite surprised that an arbitrator doesn't have to tell you if they've got a conflict of interest. You know, that, that's, yeah. uh, that, that, you know, that, that would be unusual <laughs> in most people's eyes. So yes, I think, I suspect it's the kind of thing that most clients aren't aware of, but they would be happy if they knew. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. That was In On The Act from EG with Sarah Jackman. For previous episodes in the series, see the archive at podbean.com.